You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. The Libertarian Party presidential policy debate co-sponsored by the Libertarian Parties of Kentucky and Missouri, produced uh, by the great uh, podcast, We Are Libertarians. I am Matt Welch from Reason, your magazine of uh, free minds and free markets, published by the 501c3 uh, Reason Foundation, which does not endorse political parties or candidates, though we have been covering the goings-on of the LP since its inception nearly a half century ago. Tonight, less than one week before online voting begins to determine the presidential nominees of the Libertarian Party, we are joined by leading candidates, Jacob Hornberger, Joe Jorgensen, Judge Jim Gray, Adam Kokesh, and John Mons. Those of you tuning in expecting to see Justin Namash, the Libertarian Congressman uh, from Kentucky, uh, not Kentucky, from Michigan, uh, he dropped out of the race this afternoon. So here's how tonight's debate is going to work. Minutes for everything, for opening, for closing, for answering questions. Uh, if I ask follow-up, they get a minute for that. But, that lasts very long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they also have uh, three one-minute time cards that they can play, either as a rebuttal or a hostage note, uh, or to extend their remarks. If they go too long, they can be charged one of the said cards. The final reminder to the audience out there listening, besides thank you for watching and listening, uh, at the conclusion of the debate, there's going to be two polls, one for viewers and one for actual voting delegates. That poll will help determine which three candidates will make it into the next debate. You can find out more information at, about all that at lpky.org slash survey. All right, let's do this. Candidates, starting with Jacob Hornberger. Tell us about you and your campaign, uh, preferably with an eye towards explaining what qualities make you in particular, as opposed to your competitors, the best potential nominee for the Libertarian Party. Well, let me first start out by saying that, as many people know, I was a civil and criminal trial attorney for 12 years before I shifted gears and moved into where my big passion in life was uh, libertarianism. And I, I just want to comment on Justin's um, decision not to seek this race. He's a lawyer, too, and he knows that when lawyers get into the courtroom, they, they battle it out. I mean, with a lot of ferocity sometimes and people looking in uh, a trial would think that, you know, lawyers are, are the litigants are just mortal enemies. And it, such is not the case at all that two or three days after a trial, the, law, the opposing lawyers will go out for dinner and have drinks and go to conferences together. And that's the way I see political races. Um, I think uh, Justin brought a lot of prestige and prominence to this party. And I think uh, the national limelight on this presidential race. So I think we should all be grateful. And it, it would be an honor and a pleasure to, uh, to have dinner with, uh, with, with Justin at some point here and discuss liberty and the law. I also want to give a shout out to Cecil Entz, who he had he had had a debate scheduled for tonight and he had to get it canceled because the Kentucky LP scheduled it on the same day or they merged it. And so just want to say, Cecil, thank you. I entered this race for one reason. I want to live in a free society. I want everyone to live in a free society. Uh, and if you look at the Libertarian Party platform, it says that's our goal to live, to achieve a free society in our lifetime. Well, that includes my lifetime. I say in this race, we go all in, that we do a frontal assault on liberty, on the Democrats and Republicans with the aim of achieving, achieving a genuinely free society. We do that with our principles. I said from the beginning, my campaign is a bold one. It relies 100 percent 
pure libertarian principles. This is what I want to do. I wage, wage a campaign of principle for the party of principle. All right, Joe Jorgensen. Hey, I'm Joe Jorgensen. I was Harry Brown's 1996 running mate. The thing I'm most proud of is that we were able to double the party size, which was the largest growth in Libertarian Party history. And that's what I'd like to do again for this campaign. First, I would like to uh, mention that I am thankful that Justin Amash is staying with the party and plans to help us. I think we do need that. And also, I would like to echo what uh, Jacob said about Cecil Ince. Cecil's actually on my campaign, and he's just been invaluable. So thank you, Cecil. Uh, these general or these debates give libertarians as well as the general public the opportunity to see what each candidate was would do as president. So I'd like to mention what I would do as president and just ask in general the other candidates. So would they use their authority as commander in chief to end our involvement in foreign wars, to stop subsidizing the defense of wealthy allies and to bring the troops home? I will. I've been advocating that America become one giant Switzerland. Also, would they use their pardon power to free people convicted of exposing government corruption, violating unconstitutional dictates, and committing so-called crimes where there is no victim? Will they stop immediately uh, uh, supporting or would they help stop the construction of President Trump's border wall boondoggle and work to eliminate quotas on immigration so that anyone who wishes to come to America could do so legally? I will. Would they work to give Americans the right to opt out of Social Security and take control of their own financial future? And will they keep faith with those forced to pay for the system for decades, not of their own doing, but of the government? It's not enough for the libertarian candidate uh, to be better than Trump or Biden. Our nominee must be principled, communicate libertarian ideas in a way that non-libertarians will understand, and show the benefits of bold libertarian proposals. I am that candidate. I can unite the current libertarians while appealing, appealing to millions of Americans. My website is joj2020.com. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Judge Jim Gray. Well, thank you, Matt. Appreciate the opportunity and, and welcome to our viewers to invite us into your homes. First of all, let me thank the volunteers for the LP of Kentucky, as well as Missouri. Uh, and we have numbers of volunteers for our campaign and, and other candidates do as well. And the Libertarian Party just can't function without those, those volunteers. So, so thank you for your efforts. Uh, many of you know me. Yes, I was the, the uh, Libertarian candidate vice president in 2012 with Governor Gary Johnson. Created that, I was in the Peace Corps. I'll be the first person from the Peace Corps to be in the United States uh, in, in, in Washington. In, uh, in, the, in the White House. So we have this background. I was in the military. I was a federal prosecutor. I was a judge for 25 years and actually picked up that mantle back in 1992, holding a press conference uh, to speak out libertarian-like uh, against the war on drugs. But Larry Sharp and I are a campaign that will unify the LP. They will unify, once we get the nomination, will unify the country. But what you can't do, we all have the same goals. We all wish to have our principles, our goals, our, our outsets, but we have different ways of getting there. Look, the answer is, if you're going to say all or nothing, almost always you get nothing. But if you go 
instead of scaring people, you inspire people. You have an audit. You show the people why we need to go in this direction. You'll be successful. And that will also help the down party candidates as well. So we will conduct audits on all kinds of things, our foreign involvements, our deficits, uh, all of these various things to show people we're not going to scare them. We're going to inspire them. And I promise you that visit us. It's graysharp2020.com. Join us, support us, move mountains with us. And if you do, or even if you don't, I promise, I vow that we will do you proud. I'm proud of who we are. Thank you, Judge. Adam Kokesh. Thank you so much, Matt, and to everybody for joining us and for all the great Libertarian Party activists who make this the most incredible party of principle that we could possibly hope for. And of course, those who have put together tonight's debate. My name is Adam Kokesh. I'm a Marine Corps combat veteran. I've been a longtime media producer and libertarian activist. You might know me from Adam versus the man or from civil disobedience, like dancing at the Jefferson Monument and doing jail time when necessary to stand up for what I believe in. I'm running for president of the United States on the platform of localization. The everybody gets what they want strategy. Because when government is localized, it is transparent, accountable, customized, and can be set up based on your values to meet your needs. We all want a candidate who can speak to libertarian principles. We all want a candidate who has practical policy that can unite Americans around our shared values. And I would say that any of the other candidates on this virtual stage or in this race would be far better than Cheeto Jesus or the kid sniffer put up by the old parties. And we find ourselves in a unique historical moment right now. We are in the middle of a forced unemployment crisis and the government is using a virus with a mortality rate lower than testifying against Hillary Clinton as the excuse. I have to point out anytime I mention her name, I am not now, nor have I ever been suicidal. So we need someone who's going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity, who's been right from the beginning about this, who's got a proven message that works, who's got a message based on libertarian principles that can bring Americans together from all political persuasions without arguing people, without playing their game, arguing issue by issue. We can unite America by taking issue with the fact that people from Washington, D.C. are trying to force their will on the rest of us. Thank you, Adam Kokesh. John Mons, close us out with your open, opening statement. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, glad to have you here. Glad to be here. As I seek the nomination for president uh, from the Libertarian Party, just a little bit about my background and what kind of sets me apart from the other candidates. Uh, you know, I've run for uh, office four previous times as a Libertarian and only as a Libertarian. And in those runs, I've been able to garner over 1.8 million votes. And I'm not just running for office. You know, I really believe in the party. I've been active in the party since around 2004. And when I found the Libertarian Party, I found a home that I do not plan on leaving. I've also been active outside of running for office. I've been on the, the LP Georgia Executive Committee for several terms. I've started local affiliates. I've petitioned. Uh, to get on the ballot. And currently I'm party to a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit challenging Georgia's laws uh, for U.S. house races. You know, that's the type of activist I am and what I've been working, you know, throughout the party, throughout the years. And I think it's key when you have a nominee that has a message that can resound with 
voters. We have to be willing to change hearts and minds and be clear on what we'd like to do. And that's why I've concentrated on doing things and talking about issues that the president can handle unilaterally. When we talk about bringing the troops home, all the troops, not just some of them, bringing the drones home, that is something the commander in chief can do unilaterally. When we talk about pardons and commutations, that's well within the uh, president's uh, powers. When we talk about uh, nominations to the Supreme Court, in which I have a short list, you know, we have to talk about activists and, and those in the judicial system that have been pro-liberty and have gotten results. So we need to bring them to the forefront. So I think it's key that you have a candidate that knows the party and knows how to run races. My success has led me to being involved in televised debates, radio, and all kinds of, of media. And I think that's what we need because the message is the key. And I believe that I will put out a message and it's something that would be better than any other candidates. Thank you. Thank you very much, John Mons. Okay, I'm using a randomizer to figure out the order as we go from here on out. The next question begins with, again, Jacob Hornberger. Uh, a libertarian president would be in a pretty darn unique situation. It's not exactly a very libertarian Congress, uh, yet uh, he or she would be in charge of an executive branch which employs millions of people and which has a vast latitude on foreign policy and trade and immigration and law enforcement. So given this power, this ring of power, what specific actions as president would you take in those first days? Uh, first one is immediately pardon all nonviolent offenders in the federal system, uh, including uh, Edward Snowden. There's no reason why he should be living under this authoritarian regime with his wife in Russia, Julian Assange, Ross Elbrick, all the African-Americans, everybody in the federal system with the drug war. Uh, number two, cancel all executive orders establishing sanctions against every country, especially Iran and North Korea and China. Uh, th these are just an abominable, abominable foreign policy tool. They, they in involve the initiation of force against innocent people. They bring death and suffering. Do we get two minutes for an answer, man? Yes, two minutes for every answer. Okay. And so I would rescind all those executive orders. Number three, rescind all the executive orders that bring uh, this trade war with China and anybody else, the unilateral imposition of tariffs, which are taxes on the American people, and that have devastated American farmers. Four, issue an immediate order to the Secretary of Defense to bring all troops home from everywhere, Korea, uh, Europe, World War II is over, the Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, Latin America, Africa, everywhere, bring them home and discharge them into the private sector, end America's foreign policy of interventionism, and with the ultimate goal of dismantling the whole national security state apparatus, which then restores a limited government republic with just a basic military force, which was our founding system, to, uh, to protect only the United States. So these are the things I would do. And then there's the, the debt ceiling debate that inevitably comes up when the debt ceiling is reached. I wouldn't cave like these Republicans do. I'd say this, there's not going to be any more debt. And when they say, well, we're going to have to shut down the non-essential functions of government, I'd say, well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? And that's the way it would be in order to make sure that this government lives within its means. Thank you, Jacob Hornberger. Uh, Judge Jim Gray. Well, and thank you, Matt. This really shows a distinction between Judge Jim Gray, Larry Sharp, and, and other candidates. Look, 
It was attributed to Thomas Jefferson that any society that would beat its swords into plowshares soon will be plowing for somebody else. You're going to scare people legitimately if you're saying we're going to disband our military. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. We're not going to bring them all home at once. We have settlement agreements. We're going to audit the entire situation here, looking at what our agreements are, seeing where military bases are important or not, and honoring our, our contracts. And it was Ron Paul that said that we have something on the order of 400 military reservations around the country. We audit it. We show a light upon it. We can probably, within four or five months, bring home at least 300 of them, close them down. But you're not going to ignore your commitments. You're not going to ignore your treaties. And by the way, I believe that it is in our national interest to maintain the free flow of, of, of ships, of shipping, of trade. So we have to do our part to keep the South China Sea open and things like that. So these are all things that we just need to look at. So yes, we would do this if in when we win this election, we will get such attention that we'll go over the heads of Congress to the people. They'll be watching us. We will conduct an audit on all the federal government agencies, bringing them one by one before Congress, shining a light on them. What have you tried to accomplish? What are your plans for the future? Let's look and see. Oh, wait a minute, this is duplicated. This is unnecessary. We tire them back and we will be able to shine that light, reduce the deficit, restore understanding of our government, Today, the federal government is probably the world's largest company. The big government is really, really good at one thing, and that's increasing the size, the cost, the power of big government. We need to shine a light on it, conduct those audits, and we will get the engage the United States people in our episode. George Organson, what specifically to do with executive power in your first days in office? Well, since bringing the troops home is one of my top three issues, I would meet with the Pentagon and immediately begin the plan to bring the troops home. There is no reason why we should uh, support Europe. They're wealthy enough. They can have their own uh, military to uh, for them. Also, whenever we're in other countries, that actually makes us less safe, not more safe. The number one uh, reason to have a military is to protect the citizens, not to put them in more danger. I would also look at getting rid of the Department of Education. Education should be at a local level. Parents, teachers, and students should have the choice to, de to decide on their own education. By deciding on their own education, they would be able to more live the lives they want. We wouldn't have examples, for instance, of the student in Florida who was told he could not graduate without getting his hair cut. That is absolutely absurd. The government should not play that role. The government is not our mother and father. I would also look at the executive orders. Now, I wouldn't repeal them immediately. What I would do is I would review them, look for any unconstitutional ones, and and get rid of those. And then I would, of course, get rid of executive orders, the power, because we don't want the president afterwards to have that tool. That is too powerful of a tool to leave in the hands of Democrats and Republicans. I would absolutely focus on spending. Absolutely, we need to uh, reduce taxes. But overall, the spending is out of control. The first rule when you're digging a hole is to stop digging. So I would stop digging. I would direct the cabinet secretaries to free spending. And I'm committed to, to end deficit spending. And that would be my number one thing. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Adam Kokesh, what would you do your first day as president? 
Well, you know, Matt, before I answer this question, I have to object. I believe there's some moderator bias here. Uh, on my behalf, the first way you ask that question is, what are you going to do with the Ring of Power, right? I've been using this Lord of the Rings analogy to explain my platform for two and a half years. You know this. You give me the Ring of Power, the illegitimate ring that shouldn't exist in the first place. I'm going to throw it directly in the fire. And this is the ultimate practical policy in terms of bringing people together around the everyone gets what they want strategy. To answer your question more directly and explain this platform, there is only one thing that I would do as president with the presidential power, and that's to apply the pardon power to every victimless criminal possible. And that's all the whistleblowers, Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, reality winner, Leonard Peltier, all, all, all the political prisoners, uh, Ross Ulbricht, of course, so many more. It's hard to even name them all. It's an embarrassment. So that ends immediately. The only other thing I do then is step down and resign from the presidency to become custodian of the federal government, which is of course, an appropriate term for a, for a lot of reasons. Someone's got to clean up the mess in Washington, but really to serve as the bankruptcy agent of the federal government to take us through a peaceful, orderly, responsible bankruptcy process that leaves us with 50 independent states and up to 562 sovereign native nations. So it's true that sudden change might scare people. What we're offering is a gradual change that only eliminates 3 million out of 22 million government jobs in the U.S. That's how many work for the feds. Anybody who's arguing for anything less than this as a fundamental change is defending the status quo. The difference between Republicans and Democrats is like the difference between going off a cliff at 70 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. If you're going to be the libertarian saying, let's go off the cliff at 10 miles an hour, the American people are going to be able to see through this. We need a fundamentally new direction, and that's what localization is. Thank you, Adam, and sorry for uh, for biting your line. Uh, John Mons, take us home. What would you do with the executive power once you assumed it? Well, like some of the, the other candidates that I agree with, everything begins with bringing the troops and the drones home. And how do you go about do that? doing that? And I think the best way to do that is throughout the campaign, you talk about why we should do it, just not talk about that it should be done. And what are, what are my top three reasons for the case to the American public? Uh, you know, first of all, you know, it does not make us safe because that's the biggest reason why uh, supposedly we have troops around the world to make us safe. And it, it makes actually, you know, you know, no sense at all to be doing the things that we're doing around the world, because if any, any other country tried to do what we're doing, then they wouldn't consider us their friends and, and look for their help. Uh, two, it's, uh, it's based on lies. And we have to talk about the lies. We have to talk about the Gulf of Tonkin. We have to talk about the Lusitania. You know, we have to talk about, you know, all these lies, the no weapons of mass destruction. And if we make a case that way, I think that's something that the American public would really buy in on. So uh, it's also bankrupting the country. You know, we used to be the largest credit nation in, in the world. Now we're the largest uh, debtor nation in the world. And a lot of this is these foreign interventions, things that we shouldn't be doing. You know, also, what else uh, can the president do unilaterally? And, every, you know, everyone has talked about pardons and commutations. And I think, once again, that's something that can start on day one. I mean, we can start reviewing, uh, you know, files even before the end of the presidency or 
you know, how to do it, who's in prison, identifying people before the election. So that come January, we'll be ready to go and getting some of these people out of prison, these nonviolent, uh, uh, you know, non, um, I'm sorry, you know, criminal offenses that a lot of people are in jail for. So we, we talk about Supreme Court nominations and, and who we'd like on the Supreme Court. We also talk about diplomacy. We talk about instead of using warfare, why don't we use diplomacy? And I think that's something that once again will resonate with the American public. And we have to change hearts and minds and we have to make a case that other people and other parties, if need be, will adopt our positions. Thank you, John Mons. Reminder, two minutes, not two and a half. Uh, the next round begins again with Jacob Warnberger. Uh, I think randomizer. Uh, rebuttal. Sorry, I didn't see you. Hi, Adam. Tokesh, rebuttal. No worries. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, I, I'm a little disappointed in my fellow candidates here, of course. They're all great principled people and would, would be great representatives of the Libertarian Party. The Dalai Lama was once asked, what's the first thing you would do if you were president? He said, I would start calling things by their proper names. War is murder. Taxation is theft. Politicians are criminals. To give any ground to militarism is to sacrifice our very principles of peace and love and respect for our fellow human beings. I'm very disappointed to hear all of them, I think, use collectivist language like we to refer to the actions of the federal government, to say that we uh, are, are furthering this message of identifying with our uh, abusers is a horrific misrepresentation of our message. And to hear all the talk about audits, when you have a knife in your back, you don't stop and study it and audit it and see who made it and where it came from. You say, how do I get this knife out of my back? We don't need to compromise principles to have practical policy that unites Americans. We've got Judge Jim Gray rebutting over here. Yes. Uh, look, we are going to not scare people. We're going to conduct these audits, show, shine a light on these various things and show people instead of scaring people, because if you ask for all or nothing, you get nothing. I was in the Peace Corps training and I still remember people will not change their attitudes, change their minds unless there's a felt need. They have to feel within them that this is the right way to go. So we will actually unify our party, unify the people. They're so anxious for a third party voice. They're so anxious for an alternative between the Trumps and the Bidens of this world. So you're not going to be that radical, but we move the ball down the field. Ask any football coach and they will tell you that the team that wins the game gets the most first downs. We're going to get the first downs. We're going to make this progress. We're, and we want to win the game. That's what we're there for. We're there. All right, we good? Okay. Next round, Jacob Hornberger, you start. Um, the, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm in Vegas winning the lottery or something. <laughs> <laughs> the president obviously makes a ton of appointments. Um, name at the least one potential appointment for your cabinet and one for the Supreme Court. Uh, and for the latter, if you would, please indicate uh, what, if any, sense of judicial philosophy should undermine that pick or underlie that pick, uh, what, uh, if any, litmus test does, and whether Roe versus Wade is one of the things that you think about in that process. Uh, well, you, you have to keep in mind that the way these Democrats and Republicans have destroyed our freedom is in two major ways and then several minor ways. One is the gigantic, what we call the welfare state, which is a variation of socialism. 
It's, it's these programs where the IRS takes money from people to whom it belongs and transfers it to people to whom it does not belong. If we're going to achieve a free society, and that's what my campaign is all about, we're going for the, the, the big enchilada here, freedom in our lifetime, in my lifetime. You've got to make the case to the American people to dismantle the welfare state way of life, which means dismantling the, most of the cabinet positions. I have no interest in appointing people to head the Department of Education, the Department of Agriculture, Energy, Health and Human Services. About, you know, out of the 16 or so out of the 18 uh, cabinets, they're gone. Um, so I think it's more important to think in terms of what does it mean to be free? What do we need to do and make that case to the American people that this welfare state way of life was horrendous. The other half of this is the warfare state way of life. This is one of the things that distinguished my campaign. The national security state is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. North Korea is a national security state. So is Cuba, China, Pakistan, and post-World War II United States. To achieve a free society, we have to dismantle it and restore a limited government republic with a basic military force. On the Supreme Court, I would suggest uh, Andrew Napolitano, Randy Barnett, and any other libertarian lawyer. The only litmus test I would have, including Roe versus Wade or anything else, is a libertarian lawyer. That's all I would appoint to the federal bench, to the Supreme Court. I don't know how many libertarian lawyers there are, but I would exhaust all of them before I'd ever turn to a Democrat or Republican lawyer. Adam Kokesh, the question goes to you. What kind of people would you appoint in that theoretical world in which you still had to appoint people uh, in the Kokeshian government? Well, I, I do, actually, Matt. And while the authority of the presidency is significant, and I'm happy to say that I am not qualified to be president of the United States, I don't think anybody is to wield these levers of power that shouldn't exist in the first place. The authority that I would have as the bankruptcy agent would be, you know, one or two percent. The discretion would be insignificant in carrying out a preordained process. So we would have a, a cabinet of custodians of other agencies to help dismantle them. I've got some uh, really exciting top picks. Uh, Judge Napolitano for attorney general or custodian uh, of the agency to be able to see which agent or which uh uh, excuse me, inmates at the federal level qualify for immediate release for pardon. Uh, for the NSA, to dismantle the NSA, I can think of no one better than Ed Snowden himself. Uh, for, uh, for the CIA, I think having someone with John McAfee's passion and ability to manage major corporate enterprises and challenge authority without question, having him there would be great. Dan Taxationist Theft Berman, perhaps, as uh, the custodian of the IRS there to dismantle it. I think that would be pretty exciting. Uh, Cynthia McKinney, uh, former Green Party nominee for president, who's endorsed me, also six-term congresswoman, for her to be able to uh, manage a humane transition from a lot of the federal welfare programs down to the state level. I'm not sure which, but I'm sure she'd be good for a number of positions in that capacity. And of course, Mark Edge, my friend from Free Talk Live, who's done some jail time himself as the head of the Bureau of Prisons, managing that process, releasing inmates. Now, we would not have a Supreme Court because we would not be deciding these kinds of things at the federal level. We would be pushing policy of that nature down to the states, ultimately to the communities. But I can tell you, I would not be appointing Judge Jim Gray after hearing him on a podcast yesterday say that he would arrest or have arrested rather jury nullification activists for passing out pamphlets on courthouse grounds 
in violation of the First Amendment saying that this was jury tampering. I think that's a terrible excuse to violate freedom of speech. Judge Jim Gray, want to take a rebuttal or leave it lay? I'll speak in my turn. Okay. Um, next up is John Mons. Name one cabinet official, one Supreme Court justice nominee. Well, I think uh, one person that comes to mind is Ron Paul and what he's done for the Liberty Movement. And he could have whatever position that he, he would want. Um, you know, he's proven that uh, he gets it. I mean, he's been involved with the LP before. He's been in Congress. Uh, another uh, person for the Supreme Court that I'm, I'm thinking of would be someone like Scott Bullock, who uh, works at the Institute for Justice. And there's several attorneys that have been working uh, with them that have really had significant uh, successes in the Supreme Court, looking out for liberty, you know, fighting civil uh, forfeiture laws, licensing laws. And those are the type of people we need on the Supreme Court. And I'll, I'll, I'll end my time a little shorter since I, I, I ran over last time. But and one other thing, there's plenty of libertarians out here uh, throughout the country that are expertise in their fields. So I, I think we have a, a huge pool of talent to pull from. Thank you very much, John Mons. And, the, and that's that's fine behavior. If you want to end short, it's all good. <laughs> everyone's everyone's good with that. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The randomizer says Joe Jorgensen. Personnel is policy. Who's your personnel? So Supreme Court Justice, that's easy. I would uh, appoint Jacob Hornberger. He's shown that he understands the Constitution. He's very libertarian. Right down the plank for plank for plank for the platform. So absolutely, Jacob Hornberger, uh, since I plan on getting the nomination. So thank you, Jacob, for the support role. Now, uh, Matt, would I get any brownie points if I suggested you for the cabinet? <laughs> but seriously, uh, you've just lost, so sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Well, but seriously. Seriously, Cato is the first place that I would go to. And if I'm looking for anything having to do with uh, health or housing or anything like that, for instance, HUD, uh, I would look at Michael Tanner. I have read so many of his books. Michael has a very unique um, combination of he understands the statistics, understands uh, libertarian philosophy, and he also presents it in a passionate way. And it's obvious that he's got compassion, that he has a, an understanding and a care for his fellow human beings. And I think that that's a very strong combination, but probably anybody in Cato would be better than anybody we have now. But also, I would like to point out that I would like to get rid of as many departments also as possible. So for instance, Department of Education, we've had the Department of Education for 40 years now. And in 40 years, education hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. And if we look at all the other fields, for instance, uh, technology, uh, automobiles, and so forth, People are coming up with new ideas and new ways to do things. With education, we're still stuck in the 1950s and 1960s. Look at all the innovation that we could have. We could have lower prices. We could have different options where uh, parents could send their children to school, perhaps without religion, and people could actually afford education. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Judge Jim Gray, take the category home. Well, yes, indeed. Okay, thank you. Well, one 
One thing is certainly a point Ken Armstrong, who has already shown that he is great in emergency services planning. But otherwise, I will have someone I really trust and have faith in once we get the nomination to look and look through numbers of applicants and certainly people like you mentioned Scott Bullock or certain with the Innocence Project. You know, we have too many people in prison today and we've got to re I have. I say frequently, we have tens of thousands of people in prison today that should not be there. So we'll conduct that audit, that story, look at them and see. By the way, there are a lot of people in federal prison that are bank robbers that were involved with bank fraud. You know, I'm not thinking about produce, actually pardoning Bernie Madoff. I mean, if you go through these general things, that fraud is a crime. Fraud is a, is a transaction that we need to look at. But I need to respond with regard to the that, that comment uh, with regard to the voter uh, jury nullification. I looked back at that. I was, I was very surprised that it's so obvious that jury nullification is important. I stand by it. I have for decades as a judge and before then. The jury is entitled to find a defendant not guilty. No appeal, no answer. It's over. It's done with. And that's so obvious that when I was asked that question, I actually jumped to the second part because it's a two-part question. And the second part was, look, do you want me as a judge to instruct the jury that they can just disregard the law? No, we need that process. We need to have reasonable laws. And so I went into that right away. But no, Judge Jim Gray does believe in jury nullification. It is a buttress to keep all of us from unnecessary over-prosecution by the federal government. Otherwise, this is this is where we are, and, and we will address this seriously on each level and not just flippantly. Thank you, Judge. Uh, next round begins not with Jacob Hornberger, but with Judge Jim Gray again. Uh, what specific... <laughs> uh, what specific actions should the federal government take proactively in response to the coronavirus or have taken proactively uh, in response to the coronavirus? Will you give me 20 minutes on this, Matthew? Uh, mm -hmm. look, no. The federal, <laughs> the federal government failed us from the outset. They didn't plan, just like I mentioned Ken Armstrong, who had a plan when he was with the Port of Authority in Los Angeles. And then the federal government thwarted, we've seen it in the FDA and, and, and CDC and the rest of that, they thwarted doctors' rights to try, patients' rights to try as well. So that was a problem. And then of course, the federal government did what it always does. It throws huge amounts of money. So the federal government should get out of the way the thing you do is you get experts. There are many things that we're not expert at. You get medical experts, you get other experts, and you listen to them. You, you bring in people. I was a judge for 25 years. I've learned to listen. I learned to consider. I learned to evaluate. Then you make a decision. And you don't shoot from the hip. You provide leadership. And then you allow the individuals, the owners of companies, the the uh, consumers to decide whether they're going to go into a certain store or not. That we have stores that have been shut down as being non-essential, and then their competitors, the larger box stores, etc., are able to sell what, like my clothing store or my hardware store would sell. It's simply flat out wrong. So politicians did what politicians do best, Matt, and that is they reacted politically. I'm going to do. I'm a mayor. I'm a governor. I'll do everything I can to keep you healthy. So if you're healthy, I'm, I was a success. I'm a, I'm a hero. Well, so what if I destroyed tens of millions of jobs, hundreds of thousands of companies? And if you do get sick, well, I did everything I could. So, I, so you can't blame me. No, you allow the people to make these decisions, put out honest information, allow the individuals to test, 
to work these things out, let the Elon Musks of this world work out the ventilators instead of saying, you don't have enough uh, 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 the, the, uh, uh, freedom to do that. Of course you do. That's where we go. Thank you, Judge. Adam Kokesh, what should the federal government do or have done regarding the coronavirus? The only thing the federal government should do in response to the coronavirus is die from it. We are in a forced unemployment crisis, not a health crisis. The pandemic is real, but it does not justify any of the violations of individual rights that we are experiencing right now. I've been right from the beginning on this, and I think it's a great validation of the worldview that I bring to the table here, because Ron Paul wrote a column called The Coronavirus Hoax in March. I did it, a podcast of the same title of over a month earlier on my birthday, February 1st. And I've been calling this from the beginning, pointing out what is really happening, the true ripoff here. How would things be better with libertarianism? All of the good parts of the response without any of the crappy parts. You'd have people coming together in charity, taking care of each other, respecting people's preferences for social distancing. You would have reallocations of resources to meet real human need instead of the distortions that we get from government. And as a result of this, we are in a civil disobedience wave right now. Most Americans are engaging in some form of civil disobedience. I have said that a Libertarian Party candidate cannot win in 2020 without some kind of black swan. Well, my friends, we might just be in the middle of that black swan, and its name is coronaphobia. We can step up and take leadership in this moment of crisis and show the American people what it means to properly question the system and stand up to it. We see censorship, and we see all sorts of suppression of the truth, and that's why it's critical that we have a candidate who knows exactly what is going on and can show the right way forward for the American people. Thank you, Adam. Quick follow-up. Uh, you get a minute to respond uh, if you so like. By hoax, what do you mean? A lot of dead people out there. That, that They're re really yeah. dead. No, absolutely. I want to give a shout out to uh, the great activists in the Libertarian Party of Michigan who challenged me on some of the messaging uh, that, that I've had in this that has been off the mark. And I was so passionate about tamping down the fear to tamp down the overreaction that government would be uh, capable of coordinating that, uh, you know, I, I don't think hoax is the best message for this. I stand by the message that I've had this entire time, and I've gotten away from that wording. The virus is very real. I would say Ron Paul was right in saying that the drama around it, the fear mongering around it, the states of emergency that have been declared, the reasons and justifications for taking away your rights, that's a hoax. And I don't think it's the best messaging to point out that, but certainly the libertarian message shows the way forward in a crisis, especially like this. Thank you, Adam. John Mons, what should the federal government do or have done regarding the coronavirus? Should they, they should get out of the way. And first of all, I'd like to say we have to remind people as libertarians, you cannot have a free country without free people. And to have the government believe that they have the authority to determine what business or people are essential, I mean, goes totally against the grain of what this nation stands for. And we need to point that out. What Adam mentioned some of the some of the good things. We we need to get rid of regulations. I mean, healthcare, like every industry, is heavily regulated, you know, by the federal government. 
and, and even by the states. And when you talk about certificates of need and, and whether you know more hospitals should be allowed to go into business without having to ask their competitors, we need to look at things like that. We also have to believe in the American people and let them decide how much risk they are willing to take. If anything, the government you know, may have come up with recommendations saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this or do that. But outside of that, businesses should be allowed, should have been allowed to remain open and let the owners of those businesses decide. And also individuals should decide exactly where they want to go, what they want to do to address the risk. And that is the American way. Thank you, John. Joe Jorgensen, what's the federal government's role in the coronavirus? So with the coronavirus, we have just had an assault on our liberty that we haven't seen in our lifetime. And this has come from two places, first economic and also personal. So from the personal side, this is just ridiculous that we are all under house arrest. One of the reasons that we are is because we don't have testing. And again, we go back to the government, the government being in the way. Uh, many people don't realize it, but we had something like over 60 companies come up with testing kits and testing kits would have been invaluable in the beginning so that people know who's sick and who's not. It was ridiculous when uh, President Trump said, hey, you only need to get tested if you're showing symptoms. If you're not showing symptoms, don't get tested. But 60 to 80 percent of the people with the disease don't have any symptoms at all. So with massive widespread testing, then the people who need to stay home will know to stay home. So we had over 60 companies coming up with test kits. The FDA only approved two of them. So you ask, well, what happened to the other 60 companies, 58 companies, whatever, did they go bankrupt? No, they were allowed to sell their test kits all around the world. So we Americans do not get the benefit of our own ingenuity, of our own inventions, and the rest of the world does. So with the FDA, what President Trump should have done was put in an Emergency Powers Act and stop the efficacy requirement. A lot of people don't realize that until 1962, you only had to prove safety. After 1962, you have to prove efficacy. And that's why it costs about a billion dollars to get each drug passed. So without that extra step, let's have the free market decide which drugs are the best. Now, as president on the economic side, I would stop the bailouts and get repayments wherever possible. Bureaucrats are incompetent at knowing where the money needs to go. Only the free market can do that. Allow people to decide which companies deserve the money and not government. Thank you, Joe. Jacob Hornberger, what should the federal government do or have done in the coronavirus? Well, first, let me amplify my previous answer on the lawyers, because I left out some lawyers that deserve some credit. There's Richard Epstein, brilliant lawyer. David D'Amato, brilliant young libertarian lawyer. Uh, John Buttrick, fantastic libertarian judge in Arizona, Institute for Justice, George Mason University Law School, all fantastic libertarian lawyers. I also want to say that with respect to jury nullification, my position is every judge in this land has the moral, legal and constitutional duty to tell the truth to jurors that they do have the right to judge both the law and the facts in criminal cases. Now, what we want to do in this campaign, my position is we want to raise the vision of the American people, not just to how to 
manage this dysfunctional healthcare system in a better way. We need to build the foundation for an entirely new system. What we've had here for decades is one based on central planning. And that's the problem. That's why you have these shortages. Talk to anybody from the Soviet Union. This is what central planning does. What we need, and if you look at the 1990 platform of the party, when, when I came in, it says separate healthcare in the state, abolish Medicare and Medicaid, get government entirely out of healthcare, a total free market healthcare system. This lays the foundation for a permanently healthy society, getting government out of there. We also have to establish a free market economic system where people are free to keep everything they earn so they can have savings where charities 100% voluntary, where they have a nest egg to get through one or two months of unemployment. And then a sound monetary system. They're printing money like it was going out of style. They're destroying whatever is left of this monetary system with their printing presses. At the same time, their bailout bill is sending government debt through the, through the roof. All of this is gonna end very badly. I want to use this presidential campaign to lay the foundation for a better system across the board, a free market system. Jacob's answer uh, teases up nicely for our next uh, question, which begins with Joe Jorgensen. What is your position on national monetary policy, the Federal Reserve, and how you might get to where you want to be with the Federal Reserve? The Federal Reserve has been an abomination. And what's really sad is the myth that Americans believe that if it weren't for the Federal Reserve, the depression would have been so much longer and so much worse. Actually, it was the Federal Reserve that caused that. What a lot of people don't understand is there were blips that happened much earlier, uh, 10, 15 years earlier, that the banks themselves together voluntarily figured out a way to get around it. And then the Federal Reserve comes in and just makes things worse. So absolutely, we need to get away from that uh, audit, then abolish the Fed. Of course, we need to open the market up to, uh, to have any kind of private money. Of course, I'm for Bitcoin. Anything in the libertarian uh, vein of having people decide instead of the incompetent government. So we've uh, one other thing about the Federal Reserve is that by their monetary policies, we get inflation. And what that is, is that's a tax that not only Congress didn't vote for, but that people don't even know it's there. So that is just so insidious that people are actually paying more and they don't realize it. So that's really a danger we need to get away from. Thank you, Joe. John Mons, monetary policy in the Federal Reserve. What say you? In the Fed. Let's repeal the Federal Reserve Act uh, for starters. Let's bring back sound money. And that would also help end a lot of these wars uh, in these foreign locations in this military industrial complex. You know, we all and, you know, how do we make the case for that? You know, we make the case to the American people that one, they've destroyed the dollar. You know, why can so many people not live off of one income any longer? When I was growing up, you know, it was easy to have you know, one parent at home have one, two cars, you know, a couple of kids, a nice home, a dog. And the Federal Reserve has destroyed that. So that's how you begin with the case. We talk about the fact that we changed the argument when you talk about uh, raising the minimum wage. Everybody's talking about the, the, the wage instead of the fact that 
the dollar has been destroyed, caused by the Fed, massive uh, inflation. You know, today you can take a silver eagle and buy almost uh, 10 gallons of gas and a Federal Reserve note won't even get you one. So when you make these explanations, when you make these cases to the American people, I think they'll understand it. It's very simple. And we talk about going back to sound money, why it's so important, getting rid of the Fed and restoring this country and the one that really makes things, you know, manufactures things. When you look at all the jobs that have gone overseas, a lot of times because our labor is so expensive and the Federal Reserve is who we look to for that. I remember uh, my mom telling me a story about how back in the 50s, she made 75 cents an hour at one of her first jobs and not only had money for herself, but could share what was left over with her parents. So it's not the wage, it's the value. And getting rid of the, the Fed will start addressing that problem. Thank you, John. Jacob Hornberger, you brought this subject up. What say you about the Federal Reserve? We had the finest monetary system in history in this country. It was established by the Constitution, a gold coin, silver coin standard. It was the greatest monetary system ever, ever in history. Money was sound. And that's the way our ancestors wanted it. They didn't want government to be printing these irredeemable paper notes as money. They wanted that solid gold coins and silver coins, American Eagles and St. Gaudens, $20 gold pieces. That was the official money of the country for more than 100 years. In 1913, we get the Federal Reserve and the income tax. Isn't that ironic? Because these two became the engines for financing the welfare warfare state that Democrats and Republicans were bringing into existence. So Roosevelt, during the, the Great Depression, nationalizes gold, makes it a felony to own what had been the official money of this country. It is one of the most morally abominable acts in the history of this country. It was no different from what the communists were doing in nationalizing property in the Soviet Union. Ever since, decade after decade, the Federal Reserve has just been printing money, printing money, wiping out poor people, wiping out widows on fixed incomes. It is just a gigantic engine of taxation, but it's secret. It's fraudulent. It's surreptitious where they can plunder and loot people indirectly and then blame it on big business and, and retail establishments where prices are rising in return in response to this debasement of the currency. There's only one solution, a free market monetary system. Get rid of the Fed. Competing currencies. We don't even need to go back to the gold coin, silver coin standard. Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel Prize winning uh, libertarian economist, said the denationalized money, a free market monetary system where you have competing currencies, the free market produces the best of everything. A free society necessarily entails a free market monetary system. Thank you, Jacob. Judge Jim Gray and the Fed. Oh, indeed so. Uh, you audit the Fed, you show people why. It's a private bank, and they're entitled, they're able to print money. They're re re contributing so heavily to inflation, to our deficits. This is simply wrong. It's not what we get. And we've, we've been betrayed in a lot of ways by, yes, FDR. Richard Nixon actually took us off the gold standard. It used to be we had silver certificates. It said so on our $1 bills. Now they're Federal Reserve notes. There's nothing backing them. There's no gold in backing in Fort Knox. It's an amazing fraud that they have perpetrated upon us. Bitcoins, of course, right? Free market, of course. That's where we need to go. But we need to educate people. If you just say, end the Fed, we've been saying that for decades. You need to show people why. You need to audit them, show the people, and then they will agree when you do this. 
That's that's where we should go. It's not it's not a radical thing once you get into it, but we need to show people along the way. We'll do that in the campaign. We will do that first day of office to continue to show these people what we're doing, how we're being defrauded, and then we'll make progress down the field. Thank you, Judge. Adam Kokesh, what say you about the Federal Reserve? Well, I would say Jacob's answer was pretty darn spot on. I don't think I could do better myself in addressing the problem of the Fed. Great echoes of Dr. Paul. Reading Ron Paul's End the Fed was certainly critical to my own understanding of monetary policy. So I'm going to focus on two things that I think our platform uniquely offers the American people that none of these other candidates have. And one is really addressing this problem with how we are seen as not a very compassionate group of people because we point out taxation is theft, but we don't really acknowledge how much has been stolen from the people and propose practical policy to take it back. Yeah, we're against redistribution of wealth, but not when it's redistributing it from people who stole it to the people who it was stolen from. And in the bankruptcy of the federal government, not only do we have a transition, that's the second point, is that we need a real transition away from this fiat currency system, away from centralized control to the free market for money, the complete separation of money and state that we know is necessary to end this ripoff. And we have to take back what's been stolen from us. We've heard uh, elections described as advanced auctions of stolen goods. And when we compete to you know, pay off the banks and corporations, libertarians lose because we don't want to offer kickbacks and, and sweetheart deals. We want to stop the theft. But what we're missing the opportunity to do here is to say we are going to take back what has been stolen and give it back to the American people. That's what our platform with AmeriCoin distributing everything that we can and the assets of the federal government through liquidation. The idea of full employment is ridiculous. It should be full retirement. It is our wealth of generations, our potential and our heritage that have been stolen from us by this Federal Reserve System. I'm running because I'm tired of this crap and I want to take it back. And so I hope people will join us in this effort that says it's not enough to stop the, the the theft. We have to undo the injustice as best we can. All right. Let's go to a round of individualized question. Jacob Hornberg will again go first. Uh, this is a two-parter. Uh, as you mentioned up the top, Jacob, uh, pretty rough on Justin Amash, at least compared to the rest of the field. You called him an LP interloper in a eight-part series on your website. Um, is it good for the party that he's out of this race and relatedly was why it's a two-part question um you were on a podcast with dave smith uh, one of your uh, more popular supporters last month talking about all of this and he said something interesting which was that i even think that in some scenarios one percent as a result of the national vote for the libertarian party might be better than four percent if the one percent was a hardcore principled libertarian race as opposed to another ex-Republican. So do you agree with that assessment? And do you think that it's good if uh, Justin Amash is out of the race? Uh, I don't agree. I mean, I don't say that it's, it's good he's out of the race. I, I think his presence in this race brought all kinds of good things. It brought highlights from the national press, the spotlight on the Libertarian Party. It brought prestige to the party. I mean, whenever you have a congressman coming into our party and wants our presidential nomination, that's a heck of a thing. And, and then talk about competition. I mean, my campaign manager, Jake Porter, and I and our campaign team, I mean, we were we were up against it. I mean, we've been you know doing really well up to now. And all of a sudden, this formidable guy with national media attention comes into the race. 
I mean, you hone your skills when you when you go up against the best. And I consider Amash is, you know, five terms in Congress. That's pretty much the best. So I think he brought a lot to this thing, including the competition. If well, Our position was if we couldn't beat him in a fair race, then we don't deserve to be the nominee. Uh, but we were, we're, we've been fighting hard, and he, he made us fight hard. We've got four first-class professional videos we've come out with because of that. Now, uh, what was the other part of the question? The, uh, the notion oh, that the it's way. better. Oh, yeah, better yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I believe that principles are everything. You know, I see it in my, my faith Catholic church. You know, they lost a lot of members because of the priest scandal, but they adhere to their core principles. They never water those down to get members. I think it's so important to run candidates that adhere to principle that because if you get that 1% based for the right reason, that's better than 4% for the wrong reason. I mean, if you run like a Republican campaign, a Republican platform or a Democratic platform that's that's antithetical to liberty and you get four or 5%, what have you accomplished? You haven't accomplished anything. But if you get 1% based on true principles of our party, that's your base that you build on to go from there and and hopefully skyrocket by building a base of principled candidates and people and members. Thank you, Jacob. The next one goes to John Mons. You say on your campaign website, I will make per student spending movable to the school that best serves each child, including lifting caps on public charters. Aren't those policy decisions properly made on the state and local level? Uh, Yes. I mean, on the federal level, we have to get out of education, period. But we still, as as president, as as a candidate, I can still talk about issues on what's going to be left behind when we do get out of the Department of Education on the federal level. And some of the the uh, things that we looked at talking about is as you know returning tax money to parents you know to help their child go to the school of their choice that's a, a tax credit program in Georgia that's been very uh, successful in giving parents options and i think that's the you know the bottom line you know government needs to get out of education period you know how do we get there you know on the federal level as president we're not going to fund. I'm not going to fund the Department of Education. We're going to elim- I call for the elimination, you know, of that agency, but also give some suggestions, you know, to the states on, you know, how they can help serve parents and ultimately help serve kids. Adam Kokesh, you've talked uh, a lot about your, uh, for lack of a better word, radical decentralization. Um, and uh, the transfer of uh, power from Washington to the states. How does that approach equip Americans to deal with issues that don't necessarily respect uh, small sovereignties, by which I mean pollution or pandemics or foreign invading armies? How How do they get dealt with in a world where your policies have won the day? Uh, Pollution, pandemics, and what was the last part there? Defense? Yeah, basically. Okay, so uh, as I developed this platform, which started in 2012 when I attended the Bilderberg Conference in Virginia. Don't worry, it was as a journalist, not as an attendee. Uh, you know, I got to meet some great other journalists outside and was debating Jason Burmis, the original InfoWarrior. You said, 
what would you do if you were president? And just through uh, going from <laughs> to a really serious policy over the years, that intellectual exercise has grown into the best platform I've ever heard for actually putting libertarian policy into practice. And every single thing I have examined, agency, issue, policy, what have you, gets better with localization, never ceases to surprise me. With pollution, three things. The biggest polluter in the world is the federal government's Department of Defense. The government empowers polluters through corporatism, through its own agencies. That has to end. You localize control right away. Resources, natural resources, state parks, as opposed to national parks, now become more in the hands of the people who have an interest in those resources. And three, we have accountability for polluters when we have real tort reform at the local level. Right now, we have socialized dispute resolution through government, which means that poor people don't have access. People who have lawyers, they have access. They can fight this. Localization solves that. With pandemics, you as an individual have the right to set your own level of risk and therefore communities, when that right is respected, will have better customized solutions for pandemics. We will have better responses and ability to move resources to meet real human needs in an emergency. And as for defense, you know, I'm so passionate about being anti-militarism from my time in the service that I, I just have to go back to the founder's vision uh, that they advocated for against standing armies, a rifle behind every blade of grass. What I'm proposing is actually a very moderate compromise. It's radical in striking at the root. It's not extreme because the current situation is extreme. And as Henry David Thoreau said, for every thousand striking at the branches of evil, there is one striking the root. Thank you, Adam. Joe Jorgensen, you have said... In the last debate, I believe uh, that libertarians don't talk enough about the environment. So talk about the environment. What's your vision of a federal libertarian environmental policy? First of all, the market, the free market would play a larger role. A lot of people look at, for instance, nuclear power and they say, look, in the past, it was just not safe and we can't have nuclear power around. However, anybody who loves the environment needs to consider nuclear power because it's clean and it's dependable and it's a lot better than the other choices we have. So I'd like to point out to those who are skeptics about uh, nuclear power that first of all, if we look at old nuclear power from decades ago, uh, the government looked at all the choices and said, okay, we choose this one as the option. And it ended up not being a very good choice at all. So it would be like the federal government looking at all the computer choices. Well, let's see, we got Apple, we got uh, Bill Gates there with Microsoft, we got IBM. Okay, uh, we choose Bill Gates. And then Bill Gates gets all the computer industry and Apple goes away. If that were to happen, we wouldn't have had the advancements that we've had. So I'd like to point out that, and, and I'm a big Apple fan. I've got iPhone, iPad, MacBook, and all that. Uh, part of that was because uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates just had this competitive, almost hatred for each other that they wanted to outdo the other. So currently we've got nuclear power. We've got different proposals, different technology from different companies. They're a lot smaller. They're only one-tenth the size. And if we just keep the government out of it and we allow the companies to compete so that they only continue to get our business, only um, continue to stay in business if they provide the best quality and the best uh, price 
for what people are uh, paying for. Uh, Several others, but I would say nuclear power needs to be at the cornerstone. Judge Jim Gray, um, you have favored uh, Milton Friedman's negative income tax uh, as a way to replace the welfare state and the and the or at least the welfare bu- bureaucracy with just sending people out a check, um, and yet when you look at that, how that concept is being actually uh, adapted or talked about in 2020 politics, it's usually universal basic income, and it's not about replacing any welfare bureaucracy. It's about mailing out checks in addition to. Uh, the existing welfare state. So why uh, talk about it if, uh, in your way, if it's basically more enabling people to add more welfare? Okay, no, it's the absolute opposite. And when will I ever get rid of this UBI, which I have never favored, Matt, never, ever favored it. I do go with Milton Friedman. He will put up what we call a clutch to a ladder. We'll have a crutch to a ladder. It will provide incentives for people. It will revolutionize to revolutionize the current welfare system will actually make people begin to be less dependent and then eventually not dependent upon government. It's critically important. They have an incentive to earn the extra dollar, which today is totally lacking with regard to our present system. We'll reduce the bureaucracy, the intrusion, the fraud, not only the IRS, Matt, but also these various welfare. We'll get rid of the other welfare systems, except for people that are truly in special needs. So these are things that we can look at and we can address. We will, in fact, address these. We have that five five programs. We will be able to, to follow them. The third one, let's see, incentivize recipients toward, toward independence. They don't have that today. They will have an incentive to earn the extra dollar, which is, again, totally missing today. We can, we can just do these things, a ladder instead of a crutch. So we can then basically allow, help people to climb out of poverty because under this system, and go to graysharp2020.com, it's there. Go to judgejimgray.com, it's there as well. It will really help people get away from the independence, the intrusion, the bureaucracy of government. It's really something that I believe in strongly. And by the way, yes, if I were bleeding on the street right here, You would have no legal obligation to help me whatsoever unless you cause my injuries. I understand that. But we will because we want to. So we are compassionate people. This will help people that that have just lost their job to a robot. It will help people that have just been released from prison. It will help single moms. So let me extend that just a little bit, Matt, because these are important things. We will be able to provide a staircase a ladder to help people get off dependence, off these, as well as, of course, the veterans. You know, when they come back, we will provide that independence. It's really a good thing to do, and it has firm ground because Milton Friedman is right under our feet there. And and it's something I want people to look at, not of universal basic income, please. No, it is a crutch instead of a ladder, or a ladder instead of a crutch. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. We'll go to another round of individualized questions. John Mons starts us off here. Uh, You make a big point out of saying stop punishing poverty. What do you mean by that? Is anybody else not hearing him? 
Uh, he's muted, and uh, apparently the host says uh, he cannot unmute. Refresh. Hello, John. There you are. Start right. over again. What I'm do you so mean? Uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, criminalizing poverty, we look at cases like cash bail and the fact that people charged with crimes they haven't been convicted of crimes, but a lot of times they can't get out of jail because they can't afford it. And I just don't uh, think that that's correct. I mean, it, it's about policy. You know, when you look at uh, you know civil forfeitures and, and things like that, in which you know you take away the ability for people to defend themselves, you take their property. And a lot of times you, you'll take, you know, if they're carrying cash, you'll take their cash. So, uh, you know, being able to defend themselves is almost impossible. So these are some of the ways that affect the poor and how, they, how they're able, you know, to defend themselves when they run across the, the, the government and if they're charged with crime. Thank you, John. Uh, Adam Kokesh, you have been... Um, uh, sort of in uh, some kind of partnership. I don't really want you to explain it too much <laughs> with John McAfee. Um, yeah, I, I, if I explain the whole thing to you, you might be facing a subpoena yeah. or, or perhaps a, a, a summons of some kind. Well, I'll, I'll leave out that uh, liability. Understood. I, I appreciate that. Uh, McAfee is a controversial character, um, to put it mildly, um, kind of less than organized candidates, uh, self-admitted Fabulous, uh, interested in whales in some uh, uh, different different strange <laughs> ways. And at the 2016 Libertarian nice Party reference. convention, when uh, he was uh, bowing out, he gave a speech that uh, ruffled a lot of Libertarian delegate uh, feathers by saying, shame on you. So what relevance does McAfee, your CIA director, uh, bring to the table in 2020? Well, first of all, I, I think his messaging at the uh, 2016 convention was a little off at the end, but his point was well taken about uh, racial awareness within the Libertarian Party. I think he's been a great voice for that. But more importantly, what he represents in terms of the strengths complementing my weaknesses, his corporate and organizational experience with McAfee antivirus certainly gives me someone who I could rely on as a partner in dissolving the federal government. Now, some people have called him a running mate just because we've endorsed each other and he's endorsed my platform specifically. But I know as well as you that the running mates are determined by the delegates at the National Convention convention, whether that at a place is virtual or a physical place remains to be seen. But the uh, idea that I would be able to work with him and have his strengths complementing this message, this platform, this campaign, I think is very powerful to have his endorsement on this localization policy is critical. I want to say I would love to be uh, on a ticket with any of the candidates I'm, I'm sharing this virtual stage with right now. I think they're all great principled candidates. But I think really uh, among all of them, Amash would be the best. I would love to have Amash as a running mate. Of course, Kokesh Amash not only has a great ring to it, but that would be a Jew and an Arab teaming up to take on <laughs> two senile old white dudes for freedom. And I think, you know, I'm just what I represent with this is the ability to you know, bring people together in a unifying message not just for the party, but for the American people, Matt. And that, that's really what we should expect. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to have John McAfee on my team. I'm grateful to have great working relationships with, with all the candidates on this virtual stage. And I look forward to helping J uh, Justin Amash get more integrated with the party. Uh, I think we should be as welcoming and supportive as possible with him. I'd love to have him as a running mate. And I certainly look forward to helping him get elected as our libertarian in Congress. 
Judge Jim Gray, uh, you supported while he was in the race, Lincoln Chafee uh, this year, and then entered the race when he dropped out in uh, 2016. You were excited about uh, Bill Weld when he became the vice presidential nominee. Um, this is a policy debate that we're having here. Can you talk to what about the policies of both of those men attracted you? Well, I can tell you directly with regard to Bill Weld, and he was supported by Governor Gary Johnson, and Johnson was the nominee. So I thought candidly, Matt, that I was going to be Johnson's pick until about two or three weeks before the convention, but Gary Johnson wanted him. And so the answer was that, yes, he would get national media and all through 2012 <coughs> media exposure, but no national media. Governor Weld got national attention just right away. So that was Governor Gary Johnson's choice. I actually nominated him. And then I was horrified when I heard him make those comments with regard to Hillary Clinton. I thought he was a traitor with regard to us. And I think since then, I, I need to say nothing more. Uh, with regard to others, uh, you know, who was the other one you were talking Lincoln about? Chafee. Lincoln, Lincoln Chafee. Of course. You know, Lincoln Chafee was, yes, a Republican. He was a Democrat. He was an independent. He was the only United States senator as a Republican that voted against going into Iraq. Now, I was running as a libertarian for U.S. Senate back then, and I said as publicly as I could, if we put troops in Iraq, it will be the biggest mistake of my lifetime. And nothing has happened since that time to change my mind, Matt. But Lincoln Chafee voted against it, gave him a lot of credibility. He had a lot of credibility with others. You know, he'd been a mayor, he'd been a U.S. senator, he'd been a governor. So I thought he would be able to carry the ball for us. I interviewed him on my radio podcast, which is called All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Notice I always put in that word libertarian to mainstream us because we're the only political party in the mainstream in America today. So we, we normalize, we regulate, we mainstream that word. And I thought that Lincoln Chafee would be able to do that. When he bowed out of the race, then uh, he asked his, his staff asked me to run instead. And only when Larry Sharp said that, yes, yes, you should do this. OK, Larry, will you be my running mate if, in fact, I do it? He said yes. And here we are. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Jacob Hornberger, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have written three books about the JFK assassination, including one called Regime Change and another one that talked about LBJ's role in the murder. Uh, how does this subject inform or animate your views of government? And do you think that's a helpful bibliography for a libertarian nominee to have? Absolutely. There's no question about it, because what we're dealing with is the national security state. Uh, and this is an alien type of governmental system that was foisted on the United States after World War II. It consists of the CIA, which has the power to assassinate people, the NSA, and then the Pentagon and a vast military industrial complex. So when you look at the history of the CIA, it's based on regime change to protect national security. They oust Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister of, of Iran in 53. They go into Guatemala in 54 with an assassination list that ousts the democratically elected president there. 10 years after the Kennedy assassination in Chile, they oust the democratically elected president there. Kennedy, after the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, had an epiphany. He had come into office as a standard Cold Warrior, but after that crisis, he saw the dangers of the national security state. And he goes to uh, American University in June of 1963 and says, this Cold War is a crock. It's over. We are going to get along with the Soviet Union. We're going to get along with Cuba. The whole crock is over, the racket. 
And that's what the draw line, the drawing point was. The Pentagon, the CIA, at that very moment, considered him as grave a threat to national security as they did Mossadegh, as they did um, Arbenz in Guatemala, Allende in Chile, and they needed to do something about it. This is the danger of a national security state. This is what I've been arguing about for years. You can't just have a system where you reform the CIA, where you reform the NSA, where you reform the military industrial complex. You need to get rid of this. It's a, Our founding fathers understood it's the most dangerous threat to our security, our liberty, and our well-being, which is why they would have never uh, approved the Constitution if they thought that it was going to bring into existence a national security state as compared to a limited government republic with just a basic military force. Thank you, Jacob. Joe Jorgensen, to finish off this round, you have said, and you said tonight, that under President Jorgensen, America will become one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral and with delicious cheese and chocolates. Uh, so to be clear, no NATO, no ANZUS, no mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea, Israel. If China sends tanks into Hong Kong and Taiwan tomorrow, emoji shrug. Are you ready for that? So you cut out on part of that, but I did understand uh, what you were saying. So let me introduce this by saying that I support the entire party platform, plank by plank by plank. Absolutely, we need to bring the troops home. Absolutely, we need to worry about America's defense, not every other country. Of course, it would be tragic to have other countries um, in, you know, go, go to war with other uh, countries or even to have a civil war. And it would really be tempting to try to get into the middle of that. But every time we stick our noses into somebody else's business, it makes us less safe, not more safe. Uh, we look at where we've tried to help other countries, where uh, where we say we try to help other countries. A lot of times it just makes us wor makes it worse. So absolutely, I would stay back. Now, I would like to point out there's a difference between the United States military and what individuals in a country may choose to do. So I would tell the American citizens, hey, if you feel strongly about a war in another country, I'm not going to stop you. You may go ahead and you may help any other country you like. You may send money to whatever you like. You can buy weapons for another country. You can go there and fight in a war if you like. So I would absolutely leave the choice to the individual. And that's what the Libertarian Party is all about. It's about choice for the individual. And by having America be one giant Switzerland, we would have peace. We would have, uh, we would be able to keep our, our people at home and not uh, send them out to, for instance, support uh, foreign dictators. We wouldn't have them out making things worse. I'd like to point out the Bush just thought that Saudi Arabia just loved us. Actually, what happened was the royal family of Saudi Arabia loved or our royal family of the Bushes, but the people did not like Americans. And all you have to do is look at the uh, hijackers for 9-11. Many of them came from Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Joe. New round of questions uh, that are generalized to the whole group. Adam Kokesh goes first. Are there any federal crimes that should remain federal crimes? What should be federally against the law and what should be done um, to those people who are currently imprisoned under those federal laws should they uh, themselves be changed into now no longer being federally prohibited? 
Well, again, Matt, I, I got to complain about moderator bias. This is certainly a softball question designed to highlight some of the greatest strengths of my platform and localization and getting these kinds of decisions about criminal justice, about public safety, about holding bad actors accountable down to the local level. Right now, we are still, I, I, I'd like to say we're maybe perhaps at the, uh, the end of the beginning of the end of the war on drugs, so to speak, in the United States, where we're seeing that the changing of the paradigm referenda is allowing state governments to legalize cannabis in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, and with different regulatory frameworks that are customized to the needs of those communities. Even psilocybin now, a great treatment for PTSD. And by the way, I'll take this opportunity to talk about veteran suicides, because if you don't have a serious plan to deal with this issue, you should not be taken seriously as a candidate. We need to end the drug war, give veterans the freedom to medicate how they see fit, see fit. get the VA privatized, put it in the hands of veterans. You give it to us, give us that freedom. I guarantee you won't have 22 veterans committing suicide a day when you have the pharmaceuticals, the, the special interests and the politicians out of the way setting medical policy for America's veteran community. This applies to justice issues all the way in localization down to the pettiest of individual crimes where we know you have to make your victims whole. You have to have restorative justice in order to have real justice. Empowering communities to have a bigger role in this and making dispute resolution mechanisms more accessible, especially to the most impoverished Americans, that's the most important reform in criminal justice in America. Thank you, Adam. Jacob Hornberger, uh, what should be federally against the law? Uh, virtually nothing. I mean, you know, when we talk about a free society, and that's that's what I want to bring to the American people if I were to uh, be accorded the the honor of this nomination, is we want, to, we want people to talk about what does it mean to be free? What is the role of government in a free society? And at the federal level, uh, I, here's where I stand with Adam. Decentralize all the, the criminal justice. Send it down to the state and local level. I think the Constitution calls for piracy. Uh, there's no reason why a state government can't prosecute a pirate. But, you know, you've got, you've got so many federal crimes, including uh, illegal entry with immigration controls, the drug war, uh, economic regulations, just get rid of them all. Repeal the Interstate Commerce Clause, which gives the, the excuse for the, the federal government to exercise all kinds of ridiculous crimes. So when you, when you start looking at a free society, and this is the vision I want to bring to the American people, the federal government is essentially doing nothing. It's got a basic military force to protect the United States from an attack which is a non-existent possibility. No nation state has the remotest capability, military, financial, or otherwise, to cross the oceans and successfully invade the United States. Uh, you, you have criminal justice at the local level, the state level, and then you got a federal court system for resolving disputes, civil, civil suits, where the federal courts have jurisdiction. No more welfare state, no more national security state, just a limited government republic with a basic military force. This was our founding system. This is what Americans once called freedom. And so what I want Americans to do is to reflect on why did we get off this road? What have been the consequences of getting off this road? And what do we need to get back on the road to liberty, free markets and genuine, genuine limited government? Thank you, Joe Jorgensen. What should be federally against the law? Well, I think uh, treasonous behavior should be. Uh, if you commit treason against the federal government, of course, that would be. But, of course, 
our our criminal justice system is normally done at a state and local level, which is where it belongs. So my priority when elected would be first day in office to pardon the nonviolent so-called criminals in federal prison. So this would include drug use, sex workers, simple gun ownership, anything between uh, two consenting adults. So a lot of laws that we have now, we need to get rid of. And if we look at that, if we look at what would happen if we got these people out of prison, we would see families strengthened. We would see people being, you know, fathers being able to go to their families and know that's not being sexist. We just see a lot more men who are incarcerated and unfortunately black men. So that actually ends up being racist. So we would see more black men return to their families. They would be home to support their families, be a role model for their kids and raise their kids. And by getting rid of these people, these are, or getting rid of these so-called crimes that aren't crimes at all, we would make room in our jails for the real criminals, for murderers, rapists, and other uh, violent criminals. It would also cut our law enforcement uh, down, the cost down, because a lot of times when we look at these crimes, we look at it just from a criminal standpoint, as opposed to looking at um, what's the cost of jailing people for crimes that shouldn't be crimes at all. So if we would, if we would go to just having local, uh, local people in charge of the, the police, which is where it should be, our country would be a lot better and let the courts and jails focus on the real bad guys. Jim Gray, you used to be a judge. Should there be federal laws uh, that uh, send people to jail? Well, the answer is I used to be a federal prosecutor, Matt, and there's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding about the difference between the federal system and the state system. Look, they don't get into the street crime, into the sex trade in, in the federal system. You get prosecuting bank fraud. You get prosecuting people like Bernie Madoff, who is systematic all around the country defrauding people. That is a legitimate offense. I ended up leading a, a unit, prosecuting frauds against the FHA and VA, prosecuted a lot of bank vice presidents. This is legitimate stuff. Look, bank robbery, yes. Kidnapping, yes. Treason, yes. That sort of stuff, threats against the president. So we're just hearing unrealistic comments. But I can tell you, the criminal justice system is designed for and really effective at protecting us from each other. But it is not designed for and ineffective completely at protecting us from ourselves. So if I were a governor, that would be a lot different. Then I would start getting with regard to the sex trade and the drug offenses. You don't find people in the federal system there for drug use. It, it, it's just not there. So, so that's the deal. I would, however, acknowledge openly. I am, no one can challenge my credentials with regard to fighting the, the, the drug war. Nobody. And also, I would put in... Audit again, basically looking at all of these people. Maybe they were good for the particular offense, but they were sentenced to 30 years, 20 years. It's just too long. Release those people, but do it on a case-by-case -case basis without scaring people to death. And yes, we do need the FBI. Yes, we do need the Secret Service to investigate counterfeit cases as well as, as uh, threats against the president. So these are things that, that we just need a little more sophistication in understanding what the system's about. John Mons, where are you on the Judge Jim Gray, Adam Kokesh uh, spectrum? Uh, well, I think I'm, you know, more along the lines with Adam and, and uh, Jacob Hornberger uh, with the fact that, you know, first of all, we have to look at 
90% of the federal government shouldn't even be around anyway. It's unconstitutional. So that way we could kind of filter down, you know, what types of things should be laws or, or shouldn't be and, and how do we hold people accountable. First of all, we should have a standard that if there is no victim, there is no crime. You know, I don't care on what level of government it is, whether it's federal, state, or local. So, you know, we have to, you know, talk about these things because today, I mean, freedom has become actually a pretty radical ideal. I mean, it, it's crazy. You know, the fact that we have so much government, you know, that's what we have to talk about. That's what we have to look at reducing. And we have to stay focused, you know, on the things where we can have impact. When we talk about bringing the troops home, those are things that we can win on. We talk about, uh, Joe mentioned, uh, you know, pardons and, and commutations. That's issues that we can win on. I mean, there will probably be a lot of, you know, side issues that come up in any campaign. But we all know that we need to really focus on the issues that we can beat the other parties on, hold fast to those, pivot if we have to. You know, we get some crazy question out there and we'll go back to the mainstays. And that's how we change uh, hearts and minds with the, the typical American uh, citizen. Thank you, John. A new round of questions, starting again with Adam Kokesh. What is the ideal way to fund the federal governments? What, given the world we live in, is an achievable approach to change the way the federal government is funded? Well, well, let me ask you a, a sort of parallel question, Matt. What's your favorite kind of cancer? What, what's your favorite form of tax, right? What, what, what's the best way of keeping an immoral institution going? There isn't one. We shouldn't. And it's very clear by libertarian principles, basic logic, that taxation is theft. So this gets back to the Libertarian Party platform for the party of principle that says where governments exist, they must be voluntary. And at risk at alienating uh, some of the members of the party and some of the delegates, one of the realizations that I've come to as a, you know, a 14-year activist is that both anarchists and minarchists are wrong. Larry Sharp is right. He says a libertarian is someone who says you can be as liberal or as conservative as you want as long as you don't force it on anyone. Localization is the embodiment of that in policy. So whether we have a, a national government at the scale that we have today or a global government or a local government as the dominant paradigm, that's got to be up to the people. I'm very confident that they're going to choose decentralization. That's the natural course of human progress. We see with Brexit, Catalonia, Calex, and I spoke at a California independence movement uh, event in, in Sacramento a few months ago. Great experience. And even for conservatives and libertarians or fiscal conservatives in California, localizing that state government means that its liberalness might increase a little bit in flavor, but it's going to go way down in inefficiency and effectiveness. And you get more of what you want. And once California breaks off, who are they to say that Orange County can't now become their own? conservative sovereign unit. Localization provides the answers to this and so many more challenges we face today. Uh, Follow-up question, Adam, uh, you have a minute or less, um, is, okay, well, on uh, on Planet Kokesh, on the Kokesh compound, um, how should that government be funded? Uh, what is, you know, there's going to be a government somewhere, some someplace sure. on the planet. How is the best way for that government to be funded? 
Well, Matt, first of all, I have to object again to moderator bias here, giving me so much time in these follow-up questions to explain my positions. I'm very grateful for the bias, though. And the only way that governments can fund themselves to be legitimate, ethical, moral, as per the Libertarian Party principles that says where governments exist, they must be voluntary. They must be funded voluntarily. So I could tell you my preferences. I could tell you some ideas. But I refuse to engage in the arrogance that we've heard from some of the other candidates tonight, unfortunately, and certainly from the old party candidates in the arrogance of central planning. Far be it for me to suggest that my personal preferences would be appropriate for anybody but myself. So as we localize government, we get to transition to more customized systems from what we have today. Different communities are going to have different answers. I want to be sovereign on my own land. I don't want to be taxed at all. I want the ability to opt out of any system and not have anything forced on me and then be able to form networks of voluntary relationships that displace coercive relationships. That's the goal. A world set free in our lifetime where all relationships are voluntary. Judge Jim Gray, how should the federal government be funded and what's an achievable approach to do that? Sure, Matt. Uh, realistically, particularly with this COVID-19, etc., the income tax is just not going to go away in, in for a very long time. And you can you can say all or nothing and the rest. It will really harm our down ballot candidates. It will, it will just not move us, move us forward. So look, we already talked about this with regard to a, a, a flat tax, a graduated flat tax. When that happens, we will get 80% of the IRS out of our lives. Intrusion, bureaucracy, fraud, cost. Imagine if you can, in effect, file your income tax on a postcard. That's what we're basically talking about. That would take us about 80% of the way there. Then people would be ready to go the other 20%. It's incremental, but it's huge. Imagine getting rid of all of this bureaucracy in, in, in our lifetime. Uh, this would really, really be helpful. So look, I mean, let's be realistic. We're going to have a government, Article 1, Section 8. We're going to have a judiciary, for example. I don't want the judiciary to be funded by private individuals, by private foundations, because then they get all the justice that they want, that they can buy. No, it has to be independent. Let me tell you breaking news. You know, a fighter jet is expensive. So is training fighter pilots and keeping them. You're going to need to have the money for government. So let's take it realistically. Let's audit the government constrict the government, reduce the government, you know, the Department of Education, et cetera, reduce this, reduce the deficit, but we're going to have to have an insurance, a, a, a income tax, and we're going to reduce it enormously, but it's still going to be there as a practical matter. I'm sorry. Joe Jorgensen, how best to fund the government, how achievable to fund the government? Small. I'm sorry? Fine. Keep going. Okay. First of all, I would like the federal government so small that that wouldn't even be a question because it would be so cheap to run. Uh, according to the non-aggression principle, we do not have taxes and we let people voluntarily pay. A lot of things can be done with fees. For instance, if we look at courts and, and other things. Um, David Friedman, I believe it was, put, put forth a great, uh, a, a great argument for this. People were asking, well, if we just let people donate to the government, people probably won't donate. They'll just all be free riders. And the example he used at the time was taxi cabs in New York City. 
People go and, you know, in New York City, they would ride taxi cabs all the time. The chances of them getting in the same cab with that same cab driver was almost zero. And yet almost everybody tips cab drivers. America was the most charitable country in the entire world. We were able to run everything on a free market system. So if people, if Americans were asked to contribute to the government what they could with the small government, I believe that Americans would be overwhelmingly happy to voluntarily contribute a small amount as opposed to the confiscatory uh, confiscatory uh, IRS, the taxes that they're being required to pay now. Americans are good people and they understand that they need to pay for the services. John Mons, how best to fund government? Uh, voluntarily. Uh, first of all, we have to get people in the mindset that most of the government I would say nearly all of it should be eliminated, first of all. So let's let's reduce all the costs. When, once we do that, whatever's left, we'd have to realize that that service that's offered should be offered voluntarily, and people should have the option to decline it. So even the small amount of government that we have, if people don't want it, you know, they, they don't want to fund it. They should not have to. But when we eliminate government, when we open up free markets, create a truly free country, we have to realize how wealthy we will all be, how all our boats are going to rise. You know, so then we'd have the wherewithal to pay for those things that each individual deems necessary instead of you know, how we have it turned around in which we have so much government. That's so costly that now they think that they it's right for them to steal what you have, whether you want to or not, to fund it. So, you know, that's my vision. You know, that's what I'd like to talk about is getting rid of the government that we have, the government that we don't want. And for those who do want it, let them pay for it. Jacob Hornberger, finish the category for us. How should government be funded? Our core principle of our party and our movement is the non-aggression principle that we will not support the initiation of force and taxation involves the initiation of force. If you don't pay your taxes and you re resist all the way to where they're taking your home through a foreclosure, they will kill you. They call it resisting arrest, but they will kill you. The only proper way to fund limited government is voluntarily. And people believe in government. People believe in the police. They support churches with donations. They support uh, music museums, libraries, there's absolutely no reason why they would not support government voluntarily. Now, many of you know that I got into this party because of the 1990 platform that was just this pure libertarian manifesto. It just stunned me. This is what I read. Since we believe that all persons are entitled to keep the fruits of their labor, we oppose all government activity that consists of the forcible collection of money or goods from individuals in violation of their rights. We support the repeal of the 16th Amendment and support the eventual repeal of all taxation. So it's not enough to say, oh, well, you know, we'll never have this. If we if we took that attitude, we never would have gotten the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or due process of law and so forth. Let me read you another provision here from the 90 platform. We call for the abolition of the Central Intelligence Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigation 
and we call for return to the American tradition of local law enforcement. The FBI is named after a serial blackmailer. They, they have engaged in unbelievable criminal activity themselves, you know, accusing Martin Luther King of being a communist agent, spying on him. This is where Adam Kokesh and I are right on the same page. Dismantle the, the FBI and the CIA, decentralize down to the state and local level the law enforcement functions. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, final question before we go into our closing uh, statements. Uh, Judge Jim Gray is going to lead us off here. Um, people who are expecting to receive Social Security checks have had part of their wages uh, confiscated all these years for the payment of that. What to do about them? Uh, Social Security, Medicare, the two old age entitlements that we have are called by their own trustees as unsustainable, and yet they are promises. What to do about that in a gray universe? You know, it would be the biggest breach of contract I can think of, Matt, if all of a sudden we'd say, okay, we're just going to abolish the Social Security, because like you say, we have been taking involuntary payments from people for decades. But on the premise that at a certain when you qualify certain age, certain status, you will get this money back. So we will privatize it immediately. The idea, again, when you're digging a hole for yourself, stop digging. We heard that earlier today. And that's right. In fact, let's try to have people opt out, buy back their contributions. Maybe the first for the last 10 years people have entered, we'd privatize it. Try to encourage others from 10 to 20 years to privatize it. But then we have to buy them out. But we stop that digging because this is a breach of contract if we don't pay these people what, they, what they've been promised. The United States government will keep its promises. On the other hand, you know, we would then, had I been paying into Social Security and just gotten a 1% return, I'd have much more benefits now than I would before. So these, again, are things that we just need to look at. But we're not going to scare people. We're certainly not going to threaten your, your ability not to get what you've been promised. So it's a real problem. One thing we could do also, by the way, that the United States owns, the federal government owns so much of the land in west of the Mississippi. I think the worst is over 80% of the land in Nevada. That land should be given back to the states. Anything run by the BLM, not national forests, not our national parks, not our, not our military reservations, but anything run by the BLM. We don't trust the states to operate their own, own land. Yes, we do. Let's initiate that process and return that to the states. Return these things to the people. It's, it's a big, complex problem. You know, remember Al Gore said, oh, it's a lockbox with regard to the Social Security. There's no box. There's no lock. And it doesn't matter because there's no money inside. It's a Ponzi scheme. Let's acknowledge that forthrightly, sell them so, and then deal with it. Joe Jorgensen, what do we do about Social Security and Medicare? Well, first, I'd like to mention that, yes, uh, Jim Gray took some of the words out of my mouth here. Social Security should have never been invented. We should have never had it. It is a Ponzi scheme, which takes money from some people and gives it to others. That is absolutely against the Libertarian Party platform, and we have to stop that immediately. Under my administration, I would work to have an immediate opt-out where anybody could opt out of Social Security on day one so that they stop having their uh, money taken, their hard-earned money taken from them. Now, what to do about the people who've been promised? You know, we've got uh, people in their 60s, 70s, who for 50 years at the point of a gun 
had their money taken from them. They had no choice. And even though the government kept saying, we're putting the money safely away into a lockbox, it wasn't. So the money was going to fund the federal government. So two things. First of all, I do like Cato's 6.2% solution. That would be fine with me. Also, Harry Brown used to point out, hey, these people paid in all of this money. It was their money that was used to buy a lot of government assets. Why don't we go ahead and sell, for instance, a downtown post office, which, by the way, the post office should be um, privately run anyway. That needs to be sold. Let UPS, FedEx, somebody else do it much better than the government. There's no reason why the government needs to be in that business. So why don't we sell off some of these assets that money was unconstitutionally taken to be put there anyway, and then give that money to the people because it's theirs anyway, they had it taken, and then they would have a private account where they would be secure, they would not worry year to year, is my social security gonna be taken out from under me? Will payments go up, whatever. The free market always does everything better, we need to get back to that. John Mons, social security, Medicare. Well, uh, just like some of the other candidates, funny because I, I think I was one of the first candidates to talk about the language we use and saying we should call it a Ponzi scheme because people understand that. They know in any Ponzi scheme, the folks in the end are the ones that typically get left holding the bag and they wind up with nothing. We have to explain to the American public it's, it's a horrible retirement plan. I say the, the, the rate of return on your investment is horrible. We have to explain to them the fact that you can't leave anything to your heirs and why that's bad also. You know, my father died at 63, never received a dime from Social Security, but he paid in a whole lot. We got nothing. And we talk about making people whole. So these are all kind of the components of how we deal with programs that, like Joe said, should never have been instituted. But what do we do with them going forward? The opt out is important. Let's let's end the system for for young people. Let's make whole for those who have been in the system. And I mean, the government loves printing money. Uh, You know, it seems like we could buy our way, you know, into making them whole. Or maybe we can sell some of this surplus military equipment once we bring all the troops home, whether it's aircraft carriers or or, uh, you know, planes and jets and all that. Thank you, John. Jacob Hornberger, you've been talking about the welfare warfare state for decades. This is the welfare state. What do you do with it? Uh, let me add one minute on to my answer. You Matt. bet. Uh, this is this is goes to the very core of my campaign. Do you do you want to be free or not? This is what I'm saying. We got to take to the American people, which makes a direct assault on the welfare state and the warfare state. The crown jewels of this welfare state, this Marxian notion of taking money from one group of people and giving it to another group of people are Social Security and Medicare. Now, this country lived without income taxation in the IRS and and Social Security and Medicare for more than 100 years. It was the most prosperous, most charitable nation in history. Families bonded together because of that kind of system. Now, look at the amount of money that that is owed with these unfunded liabilities. We're talking about $150 trillion. That's not part of the national debt because there is no contract. There never has been a contract, never been a promise. If it had been, it would have been part of the national debt, which is now up to $28 trillion. $150 trillion. 
out of that 150 trillion, you've got 50 trillion uh, of unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare. There is no way to fund this kind of unfunded liability except with an income tax or an IRS. Now, Jim Sharp knows, um, uh, 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 Jim Gray knows that I disagree with his minimal welfare plan, but I give him credit. At least he acknowledges that he needs an income tax and an IRS to fund it. What I find fascinating is that libertarians who support these programs have, have this vision that they can abolish the income tax in the IRS. You can't do that with $150 trillion of unfunded liability. Even if you sell off the national assets, which is ridiculous because you're never going to get Americans to agree to privatize Yellowstone National Park, the Grand Canyon, Grand Tetons. That's a 20-year battle right there. And then at the end of that 20-year battle, you've got a battle of who gets the money. You're going to have younger people saying, hey, I'm an American citizen. Why shouldn't I get part of this money? Why is it only the seniors? That's another 10-year battle. That's a 30-year battle. And, and the, the federal lands, the total value is about $5 trillion anyway. It's a drop in the bucket. You need an IRS and an income tax. And this is what Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson understood. And you need a Federal Reserve. You support this welfare state and you can kiss freedom goodbye. And that's why I say, let's go into this campaign and go after these Democrats and Republicans for what they've done. They've destroyed our faith in ourselves and faith in private charity. I have no doubt that you could push the button right now and I'd push it and you'd have immediately the foundation for the former Social Security recipients. There would be millions of dollars funneling in there to help people who still are in need. That's where charity truly is voluntary. That's what I want to recapture in this country, a faith in ourselves, a faith in others, a faith in charity, and a faith in free will. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, John Mons, you have a rebuttal? I just want to just add a word. I, you know, I believe a lot of the, the amount of money that's the liability when you deal like with programs like Social Security and, and, and uh, Medicare is, is the fact that that's the projected number if we keep these programs going. If we allow people to opt out, we get the young people out. You know, we don't have to worry about, you know, continuing these programs, you know, for the next 50 years. Then that starts bringing the amount of money that's owed in these programs down. If we make people whole, even if we just give them what they put into the system and then allow them to start their own uh, retirement programs uh, and, and things like that. If we get out of the insurance industry, you know, which is also heavily regulated and allow people to get uh, and allow companies to offer custom uh, insurance, you know, depending on the individual and their health and, and things like that, that's going to help it also. Thank you, John. Adam One, minute, rebut one oh, minute rebuttal. You go ahead. Um, if you let young people opt out, the seniors still have to keep getting their money. Uh, that's the program. And so who's going to be paying this? You're going to have to keep plundering and looting young people through their withholding. There's no other way. Government doesn't have any kind of like money under the table. So what you're doing is you're letting them opt out so that they're not participating in this, but you're still plundering and looting them to the tune of $2 trillion a year. What's going to happen when those people who are 30 get to be 60? They're going to say, hey, I put it in. I have a right to get it back. 
So this program never ends. It's a never ending socialist program. And we got to keep in mind that that's what this is. Social security originated among German socialists. So did Medicare. It was imported into the United States and has been one of the most destructive socialist programs in our nation's history. We could do the greatest thing for our future generations to rid our, our nation of this socialist nightmare. Adam Kokesh. Oh, Joe Jorgensen. May I respond to that? You may. Okay. Because I was one of the people who said immediately opt out. And no, I did not say the younger people need to be supporting the old pe older people. You might have missed the last part of my plan. The last part of my plan was Harry Brown's plan, which is to sell the government assets, which were bought with taxpayers' money to begin with, and simply return it to them. So all we're doing is giving them what's rightfully theirs, because we know that their money was not put in a lockbox. It was used to spend money for the government. I'd like to point out that there's an element of we need to present something to the American people that they will understand. And let me give an analogy or, or that they will understand and that they will think makes sense. Let me give you an analogy. On day one, let's say, um, let's say, and, and by the way, I'd like to use one of my extra minutes here. So absolutely the free market needs to take care of, of people who can't take care of themselves. Absolutely people need to have to their own choice of retirement, a safe, secure retirement, which they could get from private enterprise, from, from private investments. Absolutely, private charity will do a much better job than government charity. The problem is right now, we don't have private charity set up enough to take on the extra load when the seniors need to be um, need to support themselves because 12 million people right now depend on social security. I liken it to water companies. A lot of water companies are pseudo governmental agencies. What if we said, okay, the government needs to get out of the water industry and day one, we're going to shut off everybody's water and we'll just let the free market take over. We can't get enough water companies to, to set up by day one. We need to have a transition time. Now the transition time is not by taking money away from other people, but by selling assets, which the people pay for with their own money. Thank you, Joe. Anyone else before we get to Adam Kokesh's turn in this round? <laughs> it's all you, Adam. Uh, now, I, I'm glad I get to go last, especially after all that back and forth between the central planners arguing about which of their central plans is the best way to address this problem. And frankly, that's scary. Because when you hear the federal government saying, don't worry, trust us, we've got your retirement, we'll take care of your welfare. Most people are, are, are just as scared of that as when they hear that we're going to abolish everything, when they hear, oh my gosh, uh, I'm going to die. And the idea of trusting anybody with such a large centralized system like this is, is truly scary. We should get away from this with localization. I don't trust any federal government uh, with any leadership to, to do this fairly. And if you look at my uh, you know, fundraising and social media numbers, uh, it might be that I'm the only candidate on this virtual stage who the people aren't scared of. Although it would be fair to point out that it's possible to also bar people with a libertarian message. And providing for a transition that is exciting and meaningful and provides a real different direction for this country can be both reassuring and exciting. And that's why we've got such a great following for this campaign already. I'm going to take the rest of my time to give a couple shout outs. 
First of my manager, Elijah Gitzarelli, who's done an amazing job being with us for the last two and a half years. Same with our press secretary, Marcus Pulis of Indiana. Just both of those guys, the all-stars of this campaign. Because we talk about issues that matter to people, we have victims of family law for Kokesh. Has a lot to do with welfare incentives for child kidnapping, child custody. Anybody who's been through a bad divorce or like myself been a child of divorce can identify and be part of an uprising against family law in this country. We've got my wife. Uh, with exotic entertainers for Kokesh, Samantha, uh, excuse me, it was Samantha Koch, Samantha Morgan Miller, Carnabucci Kokesh, the love of my life. We've got gun owners for Kokesh, first responders for Kokesh, stoners for Kokesh, gender and sexual minorities for Kokesh, and Christians for Kokesh, proving that this is a message that resonates with people all across the spectrum. Before we get to our closing statements, viewers, listeners at home, uh, go to www.lpky.org slash policy. You can actually go there right now uh, and uh, say which of these people you like best. This is going to help determine uh, who gets invited back to uh, next debates in these waning hours that we have before voting starts. And for the actual uh, voting delegate members of the Libertarian Party, um, you can go to lpky.org slash survey but go there vote early and often for your favorite uh, your favorite candidates let's go to closing statements uh in the reverse order of the openings which means that john mons goes first well i want to thank lp kentucky uh matt did a great job and just want to say uh, just a few things now is our time you know and something i disagree a little bit with judge gray is that we do need to ask for it all we need to ask for what we want. And when I say now is our time, people like to look back in history, you know, and say, well, you know, back if I was living back in a revolutionary war, you know, I would have been right there with the founders. I would have been fighting, you know, or, you know, if I was in during slavery, I would have been anti-slavery and I would have done this and that. You don't need to look back in history. What we're facing today, the amount of tyranny where you have a government deciding what businesses are necessary, what people are necessary in their livelihoods. Now is the time to take a stand. And I think the best political party you can do that with is the LP. And I think my candidacy just offers some very unique possibilities for having success. And I have a proven track record, whether it's percentages of vote, whether it's the number of votes, the LP is where I've made my home. You know, they, you can trust me. You don't have to worry about where would John be next year or the year after if we make him our nominee. Now, I've been here with you for almost 15 years or more, and I'm going to stay with the LP. I'm going to thank the other candidates. I think uh, they offer a lot of great options. So, um, you know, thank you once again. It's been my honor, you know, to run for this nomination and to hopefully move this party forward. Because once again, we have to make the case that freedom is a radical ideal and we need more people like us to be shouting it from the rooftops. And that's what I want to do. I want to work with the state leadership, go from state to state because they know what's best. You know, they, we don't need top down nominee. We need to work with the states. And I want to send a shout out to Brad Barron for Senate and all the other wonderful candidates across the country that I'll be there for you, whatever you need. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Adam Kokesh. 
Uh, two rebuttals left, so that's four minutes on the clock for me. Yeah, I've got you down as having only one left. I, I think two of them were you asking me follow-up questions, but I think I can do this in three minutes if, if necessary. They weren't. So actually. here we go. Go. All right. So uh, the federal government of the United States of America has become extremely corrupt, extremely overgrown, extremely good at ripping us off, extremely good at Epstein didn't kill himself, and keeping it going would be extremely irresponsible. As I have proven over my career as an activist, I have the hustle that is going to take this party to the next level. With me as your nominee, win, lose, or draw in 2020, I'm going to be around making sure that we maximize our potential between now and 2024 in building this party, supporting local candidates, integrating with them with our events, and with our message of localization itself, making them more relevant. We got to start with a candidate who's got some name ID based on success in spreading the message. It's really kind of a fantasy to expect that someone who doesn't have any notable success spreading the message is suddenly going to hit their formula when they become the nominee, which kind of unfortunately means the choice comes down to myself and Vermin, if that's one of your criteria. But also, it's this platform that is the opportunity that is so much more important in terms of really embodying libertarian principles in policy. In 2016, if not voting counted as a vote for nobody, the electoral college results would have been Donald Trump, 21, Clinton, 72, and nobody in an epic landslide of historic proportions, 445 electoral votes. Let's give the American people what they want and win. In 2014, secession already polled nationally. And this was before the polarization of Trump and the coronaphobia crisis polled at over 25% nationally. We have the potential to come out the gate with up to 25% if we nominate someone on the localization platform. Now, this has been such an incredible experience bringing people together. I have had so much fun because politics is about making friends, talking about ideas that you care about. It's been an amazing experience. And we've brought people together from so many different walks of life for this campaign. Even Donald Trump said that he would support this platform if we could let him be president of a state with no Muslims or Mexicans. I say we let him have it. Localization is the way forward. We don't have to be united under one government to be united in American values. Clearly, America is too good for this government. This is our opportunity, Libertarian Party. Let's take advantage of it. Let's move forward with boldness and courage and a candidate who can represent our principles properly. For anybody who's not members of the Libertarian Party already, if you're watching this, please go to lp.org right now. Join the party of principle. They don't like me saying this, but you can also add a slash free membership for the free membership option. Please join us today. This is the evolution you've been waiting for. Thank you, Adam Kokesh. Judge Jim Gray, closing statement. Matt, I believe I have one extra minute. Is that correct? You do. Okay, well, thank you. Well, look, Judge Jim Gray, Larry Sharp campaign is going to be the unifying campaign in the Libertarian Party. We will welcome, you know, uh, in Amash candidates and Amash delegates. We will be the centrists. We are realistic. We are practical, we are serious, and we are effective. So let me just quickly stop and show you something. It's called a libertarian pamphlet. It's called 
what is the Libertarian Party? And let me read on the back. It's put out by the, uh, by the Libertarian Party. Libertarians are practical. We know that we can't make the world perfect, but it can be better. Libertarians will keep working to create a better, freer society for everyone. That is what we will be doing. It is dated actually in, in uh, 2019. It's a recent document. Look, we're go not going to scare people. We're going to inspire people. We're going to provide you with a campaign that you'd be proud to take to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family. We're going to continue to move that ball forward. We're going to help the down ballot candidates. Candidly, if you listen to some of the comments made this evening about we're going to cancel this and cancel that, it's going to really, really seriously harm our down ballot candidates because they're not going to be taken seriously. This is where we build the party. This is where we grow the party. So we don't scare, but we will inspire. We will be those unity candidates. We don't have any baggage. We've been around. We are for known quantities. We'll be here tomorrow. Larry Sharp and I have helped down ballot candidates. We are in there. I have tried to mainstream the word libertarian. My podcast, All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. The recent book I've written, Two Paragraphs for Liberty. See that again? Two Paragraphs for Liberty, programs that are, that are practical, effective, responsible, libertarian. We need to mainstream because we are the only mainstream party in, in America today. We have constituents. They don't know it yet. You know, people that have children in school, the schools are failing them. The elderly and the and the sick with regard to our health care system, they all have nowhere to go but us to get it back into the private sector. Veterans, people in the military, people in the families of the military, all of them are our natural constituents. If we talk with them, we explain. Yes, we audit these things, explain them to them. We will move that ball forward. We are here to win the game. Look, we are here. We are you go to www.graysharp2020.com. We promise you that we will make you proud. We promise that if you join us, if you support us, if you help us move those mountains, we will, even if you don't, one way or the other, we will make you proud. We will do you proud and thank you for the opportunity to serve. Thank you, Jim Gray. Joe Jorgensen. How long do I have? You can take as long as three minutes. Thank you. So earlier, Judge Gray said that when you get, when you go after all or nothing, you actually get nothing. And I completely agree. However, I believe that we can give something less than all or nothing and stick with the party platform. So Jim Gray has explained a very practical message, which I think will help non-libertarians out there understand how freedom can help them, but it doesn't follow the party platform. On the other hand, Jacob Hornberger did a great job highlighting libertarian principles, but again, Americans want to know, well, what's in it for me? How does that help me? How does that help me pay my bills? And if you tell American voters, hey, vote libertarian and you get freedom, most people roll their eyes and they say, but we're the freest country in the world. We have to show them how our principles help them. We have to explain, for instance, how if we take education out of the government, how you will have better quality education. You'll be able to choose what your students, what your children learn in school. You can have religious or non-religious, uniforms, not uniforms, cut your hair, not cut your hair. I would have a um, bring the troops home 
one giant Switzerland that will make us a safer country. There is no reason that we need to be fighting undeclared foreign wars and leave wealthy allies um, or, or funding wealthy allies. Um, in fact, we don't even need to, need to be fighting the declared wars. We need to get out of that. We have to stop being the world's policemen and that will make us safer. I will work in Congress as president to create a truly competitive market in healthcare. Again, we've got to explain to people. So often we hear people say, well, we've already got a free market in healthcare and that didn't work. So we only have the, you know, the only other choice is to go, uh, to go to universal health care or single payer system. No, we don't have a free market in health care. So we have to show the people how this is not free market. And if we go to a free market, here's how your costs will go down. Here's how you'll be able to choose the doctor that you want. And guess what? Health care will be so low that you won't even ask for payment for these everyday expenses that cost so much right now for routine office visits. And also I will work with Congress to permanently fix our unsustainable social security system. As you can see, I'm running on a bold principled libertarian message, one that all libertarians can support and appeal to the millions of fed up independent voters. Please check me out at joj2020.com, thank you. Thank you, Joe Jorgensen. Final closing statement of the evening goes to Jacob Hornberger. Three minutes, Matt. You bet. Uh, when I was 28 years old, I discovered the libertarian philosophy in a series of little four little books, and it changed the course of my life. And these essays were hardcore, purist, principled essays. No incrementalism, no privatization of this, no health savings accounts. They were just essays by Ludwig von Mises, Leonard Reed. And it was exciting. I didn't get scared. It was exciting. The scales were dropping from my eyes from the indoctrination that I'd received in the public schools. Then in 1990, when I joined the platform committee, I was elated. I wasn't scared by this platform. It was like the most marvelous libertarian manifesto. Why is this important? Because in order to achieve a free society, and that's what I want, I think everybody here wants a free society, you've got to identify what are the infringements on freedom, and then you got to make the case for removing them. There are no shortcuts to, to liberty. So if the welfare state is an infringement on liberty, you got to get rid of it. Otherwise, you're not going to be free. If the national security state is an infringement on liberty, you got to get rid of it. Otherwise, you're not free. Same with drug wars. That's that's why immigration controls. That's why I'm saying let's do something different in this campaign. Let's go all in for a free society. Let's go in there against Trump and Biden and make the principal case that using 100% libertarian principles on why freedom works, that why you can trust people with freedom, why you don't need to take this $2 trillion out of their pockets every year. Cut out the middleman. You can trust people. We just have to encourage people to start trusting themselves, to believe in themselves, to have a higher self-esteem, to say, hey, I can handle this freedom. And then from the practical side, not only is this a glorious philosophy that, that we're selling, it's a practical way out of all the crises, immigration crises, healthcare crises, economic crises, monetary crises. Libertarianism is the only way to get out of these crises. So what I'm suggesting is 
Let's run a bold campaign. Let's do something completely different this time around. Rely totally 100% on libertarian principles. Take it to Biden and Trump and their respective parties. They have all the money and power in the world, but look where they're weakest and where we're strongest with principles, ideals, sound ideas on liberty. These are our weapons. These are our swords that we carry into this battle. Let's hit them hard where they're the weakest and we're the strong, strongest. This is the way we lead America out of this decades-long morass of socialism, interventionism, imperialism, and an overall sense, statism. This is how we lead Americans to freedom. And that's what I want. That's what the party platform wants. I want freedom in our lifetime, including my lifetime. Thank you, Jacob Hornberger. Thank you to all the candidates, viewers, Listeners out there, if you want to go vote on this right now, go to lpky.org slash policy. It's going to be up for about 45 more minutes. Go in there, vote for your favorites. If you're an actual delegate of the Libertarian Party, go to lpky.org slash survey and do your business right there. Thank you again to the candidates, the Libertarian Party of Kentucky, of Missouri as well, the We Are Libertarians podcast to Chris Spangle to... A bunch of people but thank you all very much uh for watching and stay tuned for more debates or at least one more between now and friday when the voting for who shall be the presidential nominee of the libertarian party commences thank you <laughs>